Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, May 31st, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now, with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz drummer George Schuler, a native of New York City, Schuller moved to Boston in 1967, where he was raised and educated, and later received a bachelor's degree in jazz performance at the New England Conservatory of Music in 1982. For the next 12 years, Schuller was a fixture on the Boston area jazz scene, performing with Herb Pomeroy, Jackie Byard, Jerry Bergonzi, George Garzoni, Mick Goodrick, John Lockwood, Rand Blake, Lisa Thorson, Billy Pierce, Bruce Gertz, Millie Bermejo, John Laporta, Dominique Eid, and Hal Crook. In 1984, he co-founded the 12-piece ensemble Orange Then Blue, recording several acclaimed albums including the 1999 release Hold the Elevator live in Europe and other haunts on GM recordings. Orange then blew a toured extensively through the United States, Canada, the Middle East, and Europe during the 1990s. Over the last two decades, Schuler has also released several albums as a leader, including his first CD entitled Looking Up From Down Below on GM Recordings, and two releases with The Shul Dogs, Tenor Tantrums on the New World Labor label, and Hellbent on the Playscape label. Schuler has also released three recordings with Circle Wide, including Round Bout Now on the Playscape label, featuring Ingrid Jensen and Tom Beckham. Like before, somewhat after, on the Playscape label, featuring Donnie McCaslin and Dave Ambrosio, and more recently, Listen Both Ways, on the Playscape label, 
featuring Peter Apfelbaum and Brad Shepik. Schuler has also recently embarked on a series of piano trio recordings with Trio This. That, released on GM Recordings with Barney McCall and George Schuler Trio, Life's Little Dramas, on the Fresh Sound New Talent label, featuring Dan Tepfer and Jeremy Stratton. Since 2004, Schuler has also released several different and wide-ranging recordings showcasing his diverse interests in many styles of improvisatory approaches, including Jigsaw on the 482 music label, featuring an all-star cast of New York improvisers, including Tony Malaby, Mark Feldman, and Dave Ballou, and the collective bands of Conference Call and Free Range Rat. In 1995, Schuler appeared on Joe Lovano's critically acclaimed album Rush Hour on the Blue Note label with compositions and arrangements by Gunther Schuler. It was voted Album of the Year by Downbeat Magazine. In addition, Schuler has performed and or recorded with many of today's leading musicians, including Lee Konitz, Mose Allison, Dee Dee Bridgewater, Nana Fralin, Ron Blake, Fred Hirsch, Jerry Bergonzi, Armin Donalian, Cameron Brown, Burton Green, Tom Varner, George Garzoni, Mark Helius, Dave Douglas, Herb Robertson, Drew Gress, Peter Yarrow, Jimmy Green, Liberty Ellman, Jay Giles, Chris Davis, Russ Johnson, Myra Melford, Roy Nathanson, and the Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks Orchestra. Schuler has found himself on the other side of the glass, producing several albums by Orange Then Blue, Luciano Souza, Ed Schuler, Joel Harrison, the Jazz Composers Alliance, Ballin' the Jack, Millie Bermejo, Free Range Rat, Michael Musilami, and Lisa Thorson. His compositions and arrangements have been recorded by Ron Blake, Burton Green, Conference Call, Orange Then Blue, Ed Schuler, Carlo Morena, Mike Matheny, Ballin' the Jack, Your Neighborhood Sax Quartet, Trio This, Wilder Woodman Laporta Sextet, Millie Bermejo, and Lisa Thorson. Major appearances with various bands have included United States festivals in Chicago, Detroit, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Rochester, Ravinia, Sedona, Discover, Edgefest, Michigan, Sandpoint, and Lake George, along with Canadian festivals in Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto, Gulf, Edmonton, Calgary, Ottawa, Ramoski, and Saskatoon, as well as European festivals such as Berlin, Jazz Open Stuttgart, Bolzano, Vitoria, Braga, Guaymares, San Sebastian, Bergen, North Sea, Ost-West, 
Zagreb, Bucharest, Carava, Stavanger, Langnau Jazz Nights, AMR in Geneva, Red Sea, and many others. He has received several composition awards, including a Massachusetts Artist Foundation Fellowship for Music Composition, an NEA Composition Grant, as well as the Julius Hemphill Composition Award. Schuler has also produced documentary films about jazz. Music In, a film documentary produced in 2007, focuses on the summer musical haven for jazz and folk musicians that was active during the 1950s, in between the end of World War II and the Civil Rights Movement. The film includes archival film footage and interviews about the musical performances and academic roundtable discussions about music that occurred at the Music Inn. His 2018 film, Modern Jazz Quartet, From Residency to Legacy, features Percy Heath, John Lewis, Dave Brubeck, Gunther Schuler, Stephanie Barber, and more in a fascinating collection of remembrances and anecdotes highlighting the modern jazz quartet's role in developing the Music Inn's School of Jazz. Schuler presently resides in Brooklyn since 1984, where he freelances in the New York City area, performing with, among others, Michael Musilami, Armand Donlian, Ray Parker, Katie Bull, Jason Robinson, and Yard Bayard, in addition to leading his own groups. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, George Schuler. Hello, George. It's great to talk with you. Good to uh, be here, and uh, thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. I've been very excited to have you as a guest on my podcast. Um, my first question is one I ask most everybody, and uh, I always like to, to hear the uh, different answers that I get. Uh, as a musician, who turned the light on for you? What turned you on to music? Well, I grew up in a musical environment and, um, you know, I guess I was uh, trapped, <laughs> luckily trapped yeah. in that environment for, you know, as growing up as a little kid. Um, of course, my father, Gunther Schuler, uh, was a well-known musician of that time, very um, busy performing as a, er, early on as a French hornist and uh, and uh, part of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra uh, for, for about 14 years. Um, but, you know, as soon as I came along and was born, uh, you know, he uh, decided to retire from the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra and devote most, most, of, the, most of his time to, uh, comp to writing music, compositions, um, and then um, conducting and teaching and uh, being sort of a, you know, uh, he was just had wore many hats even at that time. We're talking, mm -hmm. you know, 58, 59, 1960, mm -hmm. putting on concerts of contemporary music and then being involved with all sorts of jazz musicians at that time, mm -hmm. um, including uh, being on the faculty of the School of Jazz in Lenox for a couple of summers. 
and his association with John Lewis and the Modern Jazz Quartet and uh, all those good things, Dizzy Gillespie, mm -hmm. Uh, still being a freelance French horn player on the scene for a num number of few more years and through the early 60s. Mm -hmm. But then letting that go and then just devoting his time to uh, those other things that he felt were more important to him. Mm -hmm. So he, he kind of dropped the French horn. Anyway, the point being is that's where I got it. I, you know, the, the you know, is my curiosity going down in his den where he had his incredible record collection um and i got pretty much involved with listening to jazz very early on um mm -hmm. you know i would say you know about 10 or 11 years old i, I sort of discovered all these great little lps that i was uh, was checking out um i also got the bug of wanting to play an instrument and early on i was a clarinet player but that didn't go so well uh or just i you know, uh, decided to migrate to being a drummer mm -hmm. because I saw a, a drummer at Tanglewood who was paying, playing at a party. He was one of the percussionists. And I, I said, oh my gosh, I got to do that. So, mm -hmm. you know, that was pretty early on. Also being at Tanglewood and also, you know, being indoctrinated into the Boston music scene and, and uh, going with my parents to hear Boston symphony concerts and also jazz concerts. You know, my dad took mm -hmm. me to hear um, the Modern Jazz Quartet early on. And, uh, and uh, maybe um, I remember going with him to hear the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra at Paul's Mall, which was this club next to the Jazz Workshop in Boston. And uh, mm -hmm. so those were things that I was getting into. I was listening to a lot of jazz radio. And um, I was kind of an island on, onto myself because uh, you know, at school, in my grade school years and in my high school years, there was a few guys that might be interested in what I was interested in, but uh, certainly not. Uh, I was kind of a jazz snob and, you know, um, I was trying to indoctrinate everybody else around me. But, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. it would, you know, and, and I got to play uh, by the end of high school. I started to start to play with my brother who was older than me, a great jazz bass player, Ed Schuler, mm -hmm. And um, and I started to take lessons, you know, I was getting into taking lessons with either formal classical percussionists or jazz drummers. And uh, eventually I got to the New England Conservatory and that's where it really kind of dawned on me that mm -hmm. this is what I want to do. So uh, the bug was probably just, you know, it was a little, it was inside me. It was just there. Mm -hmm. It was. You know, I got infected really early on, and uh, mm -hmm. it just sort of evolved from from that point on. And uh, and our musical family, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just couldn't uh, avoid that. So, you know, it, it's interesting. I, your story. I mean, I I think that uh, uh, I I'm not surprised knowing your your background and who your father is that uh, you know you were exposed and exposed early. I remember uh, always liking swinging music because my parents grew up during the big band era. And so that's what they still listened to even when I was a kid was a lot of uh, big band music, but uh, nothing that was really, oh, more, how shall we say, more jazz oriented. I can remember the very first Miles Davis album that I bought was his Live at the Blackhawk uh and uh anyway 
<laughs> I don't think they had much tolerance for it. They, I mean, they enjoyed swinging music, but they, they, they weren't as intrigued by improvisation. And uh, what, uh, you know, really listening, you know, between the notes, so to speak, and, and what's going on. But that did, that came later for me as well, college. That's where it seems like, you know, you finally arrive where there are others that start to think similarly and you begin discovering people that you've never heard of and going, oh, wow, where's this been all my life and, and so on and so forth. Well, you um, know, I, I just want to add that um, uh, actually during my senior year in high school, I got involved with radio mm -hmm. um, just because, uh, you know, that again, I'm growing up and hearing all these great uh, late night jazz programs on radio. I would probably go to sleep to that. Um, mm -hmm. But then a friend of mine who was a year above me, but was at a different school, and then he ended up at MIT, told me, you know, hey, uh, this person is leaving. There's a jazz block. Do you want to do uh, some radio shows? And mm. uh, so I don't know how, you know, I just got swept into that. And yeah. I did that for about eight years at MIT, um, starting in 19, uh, let me think about that, 1977. Mm -hmm. 78 probably 77 yeah before i got to the conservatory mm. and so to, to be exposed to the jazz record collection there at the radio station this was uh at, at that time it was wtbs um oh okay massachusetts institute of technology's radio station mm -hmm. uh it the call letters were bought up by ted turner <laughs> uh and then it, we changed to wmbr but i was you know, I was doing this weekly jazz show, which exposed me to all sorts of things, you know, that I hadn't heard before, of course, getting new recordings from all the labels. And then I got in charge of that. I was the jazz director. We had a roster of really knowledgeable um, folks who also did their little programs, either between seven to nine, or it was moved back to six to eight, and then finally four to six, you know, but mm -hmm. it still was you know considered prime time for people to hear you know uh, the djs mm -hmm. and uh so i got involved with that i also you know uh, helped uh locate a lot of missing albums that were probably taken by previous djs and, <laughs> you know try to fill up the holes like we we i think we were missing a lot of blue notes and yeah riverside records you know those sort of precious records and the sure. impulse you know so but we'd also bring our own collections to the station. So that was something I got really into. And I started subbing for some of the main jazz DJs like uh, Tony Chinamo at WBUR. That was the, you know, the NPR station. And they had a great, you know, they had jazz in the morning and jazz late at night. So I subbed over there, you know, uh, I, I, got, I gather I got paid for that. The, the MIT station was volunteer. Sure. Um, but uh, BUR, I guess, gave me a little check or something. Yeah. Well, you anyway. know, j jazz is a, is such a great music. Uh, you know, I, you know, I think we'd be preaching to the choir here, uh, yeah. both ways. You know, and when I used to teach, uh, I used to teach jazz history and appreciation at the university, and I would tell my students that, you know, you may not like it at first you may not but I'll, I, i've had too many students who have come back to me years later saying i started listening to it i didn't like it i listened to it again i started to like it and then i couldn't stop listening to it yeah. and i said jazz is is like uh 
it's it's like a, an addiction obsession you start getting into it and then you just can't leave it alone it's a great music well so, it, it it provided me you know that form where i could i could hear things that i was actually you know putting into practice um as a drummer and you know going through those formative years at the new england conservatory in their jazz department mm -hmm. which was very important to me and getting to play with some of the the, the best of the, the students um yeah. you know and then having a reference to go back to you know and every week you know planning a program understanding how to you know put a set together mm -hmm. uh, and and making sure there's variety and you're not repeating the same old you know rhythm changes tunes, right. and tempo and things like that it, it was it was just this uh you know uh, potpourri of things that uh, that really helped me understand uh how i would be as a musician um interacting with other musicians mm -hmm. and you know ultimately getting to hear all the greatest drummers in the world and sure uh, and thinking you know oh my god here's elvin jones but wait a minute here's joe jones oh what what about <laughs> you know um you know yeah uh, the great drummers with you know sid catlett you know and, uh, sure i don't know so it and, and then going to the present, you know, the, the new cats that came on the scene during my era and uh, being exposed to that and uh, being exposed to the great young drummers of today. So mm -hmm. it's, it's been uh, an amazing journey and I'm still trying to learn how to play a you, you know, well, I, I, Yeah, I tell you, there's, I tell my students, I said, you know, I've got good news and I've got some bad news. The bad news is you're never going to run out of things to learn. The good news is you're never going to run out of things, new things to learn, yeah. because there's all, every time you turn around, there's somebody who's got a new wrinkle. There's somebody who's got a somebody, you know, is going to introduce you to somebody you've never heard of before or a whole genre of music that you've not been familiar with. And it's just you just learn to dig it all. You just uh, it's like I would say it's like when you go to the uh, ice cream store. Uh, you don't want to just always order chocolate or vanilla. You want to explore all the flavors because they're all great. That kind of le leads me to my next question that I also ask of uh, almost every jazz, probably every jazz musician I, I interview. You know, jazz does come in a lot of different flavors. I mean, everything from, uh, you know, those early styles that influence jazz like ragtime and, of course, early jazz and swing and bebop and hard bop and fusion all these different flavors and so from your perspective what is the basic essence of jazz across all of its various flavors and how is jazz differentiated from other styles of music well to me um i, I think i was attracted to Certainly, the energy, the, the the forward motion of jazz, um, the elasticity of jazz. You know the, you know the way it, it expands and, and contracts. Um, you know flexibility, um, the drive, the feel, the vibe. All those elements mm -hmm. are so important, and and it's not like you notice that right away as a young musician. I mean. Um, I think the the moments where I'm playing, and suddenly you feel like you're lifting off the ground um, as you're playing this intense music, 
or it could be even a ballad, you know, that's, that's suddenly the, the impact of that, those moments um, kind of give you that idea that, man, you're doing something special. This is, this is like mm-hmm. uh, a, a kind of unearthly kind of thing going on. Um, very spiritual could be, you know, without being religious about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that those are moments that you recognize and that, that you strive for. And it, it doesn't always happen. Uh, you know, there's a lot of gigs that I did, you know, that were kind of just, you know, going through the motions and, but you know, you're, you know, you're, you're uh, trying to contribute all the time and then uh, putting your soul into it. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I feel, you know, like lucky to be, you know, having done what I've done, having, having accomplished somewhat, you know, in the small world of jazz, I guess, uh, that something is there for other people to hear. That's, that's, that's uh, satisfying to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also feeling like I haven't quite done everything that I could do um, yet. So I'm still striving for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's improvisation is it probably distinguishes it um, very much from all the other musics, although there's other world musics that involve improvisation and and um but but i can very well enjoy you know anything that's fully written classical music in general but um even compositions that don't require improvisation but are still striving for something new uh the experiments of uh, all these great actually there's a lot of jazz musicians who think that way into in terms of this kind of um approach that could be you know using elements of classical music using contemporary uh, concepts contemporary compositional concepts um but also world music you know the the all the sort of blendings of that um we all you know there was one time it was you know my father's coined phrase third stream Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's evolved from that. Uh, we, we can call it beyond music or world music or global music. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, I can't really define, uh, you know, what makes it unique uh, in 10 words. I, you know, yeah. it's going to take, uh, you know, 20 minutes to define really why jazz is what what jazz what makes jazz you know and um or improvised music and um you know there's been some folks who were trying to kind of redefine jazz and and take jazz out of the equation and and, you know it's important to know and and i think russ stated this that you know it is something that evolved from uh, black musicians uh in the uh, early 20th century early 1900s maybe even before and um and so we have to acknowledge that of course and uh, of course and uh but uh, there's so many contributions now from all sorts of folks and uh, mm-hmm. european folks as well and uh, everybody from madagascar you know antarctica i was uh, watching this morning a video on uh, youtube of the uh, wdr big band yeah they were featuring, uh, and what caught the reason it caught my attention. My wife is a recorder player, and it was a jazz recorder player 
as a featured soloist with this with the big band and it was just amazing you know you the, 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 yeah the, yeah yeah it was a, sop- a soprano recorder right I, and he and he had it he had it hooked he had it uh wired you know with a mic right. so he could be heard over over the big band and it was just uh it was just amazing sound because uh uh and there are i'm discovering on be I, I i look for a lot of things when i get interested in what my wife's interested in so i've been looking for jazz recorder players and there's another one i can't think of her name she's in new york originally from Israel, but I can't think of her name, that plays the most beautiful Duke Ellington ballad, and I'll remember which one it is here in a minute, on bass recorder. Yeah. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, there's all these different kinds. So we're talking about not not only cultures, but sort of resurfacing instruments that have an association with a particular era that maybe had nothing to do necessarily directly with jazz, but we can still, you know, I, I, well, I would tell my students, you play jazz on any instrument. Yeah. You know, and then I would talk when I talk about Toots uh, Thielemans, for example, he was a jazz harmonic player. Or if, if you think that's crazy, there's a guy named Rob McCrory. He, he plays the Puccolo, which is really means he's just a whistler, you know, and he's a jazz whistler. But it's yeah. it's amazing, and I think I think you're absolutely right. It would take a long time to describe what jazz is. I think that's why Louis Armstrong gave the answer he gave when he was asked. If you have to ask, you'll never know, right. because right. it's one of those indescribable words are inadequate to really describe. I think what what jazz is, and maybe how it's different. But it's one of those things. I think we know it when we see it or when we feel it. And uh, I think that's, uh, and it, you know, it shouldn't be thought of that, you know, that we all, you know, all of us jazz musicians live in a bubble um, and think that, you know, we're the only ones who think about it. I'm constantly surprised by all the rock musicians that grew up listening to jazz. Um, They just found a a formula of, you know, making a little money on the, you know, from from their success as rock musicians. But, you know, I played with Jay Giles, uh, interestingly Uh enough, you know, these were concerts that were sort of to showcase Jay Giles's interest in playing, um, you know, the uh, sort of uh, Django style guitar approach, um, even though his thing was more about, you know, playing like B.B. King as if he's improvising on jazz tunes. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's very, he was very sincere about his approach. You know, he wasn't a great, great improviser, but he he said he told me this that he read my dad's books from cover to cover mm-hmm. he went out to hear miles davis quintet when he was a kid with his dad you know his he was so enthusiastic about talking about jazz to me and uh, i wish i had recorded those you know or interviewed yeah. him about that more but anyway you know we were the funny thing is that we would do these concerts and then all his rock fans would show up with their albums you yeah. know uh They'll, they'll request centerfold and you know all these hits that he did mm-hmm. with uh, his group and he's going oh, I don't want to see those folks you know this is a different thing I'm doing yeah. you know so um, I, but that's just one case but you know I'm just hearing about all these great rock musicians that that uh, were turned on by jazz were turned on by Coltrane love Supreme you know that influenced them yeah and uh, and you know it doesn't have to be just rock musicians classical musicians too oh sure sure you know, so. I have a I have a story I'll share with you. Uh, Phil Collins 
was in Milwaukee. Oh, I don't know how many years ago. Let's say it was 10, 15 years ago. And it happened to be that summer. He was touring with a big band. Right. And he came to Milwaukee to perform at, uh, we have a huge music festival here. It's called Summerfest. It's one of the, it's maybe the largest outdoor festival in the, in the country. Well, anyway, so he comes and he set up and the place is packed. It's this big outdoor amphitheater. And uh, of course, I think most of the people that came were expecting him to sing all of his uh, hit songs, you know, and he came out before they started and he, he says, uh, he says, the reason I'm here tonight is because uh, growing up, I always admired the big bands of Buddy Rich and Maynard Ferguson and uh, Woody Herman. And I always wanted to play drums in a jazz big band. And now I've, I have the wherewithal where I can do that. So I have to tell you, I'm not singing one note tonight. I'm playing drums. Well, oh my gosh, people started getting up and leaving. But I, of course, uh, you know, I, I knew, I knew one of the, the, I knew one of the trumpet players, one of the tenor players that were on the band. And so I uh, uh, was certainly going to stay to listen to, I mean, I wasn't going to leave anyway. Right. But that place almost completely emptied out before mm -hmm. the concert was over, but man, did Collins kick that band. I mean, he knew, I mean, he didn't just talk a good story. He, I mean, he, he could really, uh, he could really kick that big band. So that was well, it's the same as uh, I'm forgetting his name, the Rolling Stones drummer. Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts. Yeah. Yeah. He, he had yeah. his own big band too, I think that he yep. toured with. Yeah. And, and all these British guys, you know, they grew up listening to jazz, you know, they, mm -hmm. Stevie Winwood, um, you know, who's the other drummer that uh, I'm forgetting now the, the other oh, famous, uh, uh, beware of Mr. Um, uh, I'll think of it, but yeah, uh, I can't think of it right now. No, they, there, there is that sort of uh, generation of, of British uh, rock musicians that were first at first jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. Their parents were all into jazz, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so you know, it's a, it's kind of interesting to me to hear about all that. Well, I mean, it's it's I, funny I, when you it's like John Bonham, yeah, who's the the uh, with um, Led Zeppelin. Right. He was also a recorder player. Right. And he, I think, I'm not sure if he did the recorders on uh, Stairway to Heaven, but he certainly had some influence in having that included in that tune. Anyway, that's, that's not about drummers so much yeah, as yeah. His, his recorders, but it is interesting that we do pigeonhole people uh, based on what discipline. Uh, for years, uh, for about 15 years, I taught a, an interdisciplinary course with a colleague of mine in the English department, it was called jazz and literature and he uh my our it was funny how our students were surprised that i would know anything about poetry yeah as much as they were surprised that phil would know anything about jazz right, right. you know and yet anyway so i guess that was the lesson they got but but all interesting well let's uh, let's kind of shift gears just a little bit this will be i think related to what we've been talking about but you know we've got music that's been labeled jazz you know, right. for better or for worse and it's been around for well over a century but throughout its history it's had its ups and downs uh and there's been rumors of its death uh that have been great greatly exaggerated and it's probably true to say that jazz is not central to american popular music today but it still exists and it still thrives and it still lives so what do you think why and how has jazz sustained sustained itself over the past century and then 
kind of a question to come right back to you is what is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century? Hmm. Well, it's, it will never, jazz will never disappear. I don't think uh, it's too important. It's too, you know, as we, as we were just explaining, um, uh, all these musicians who are, who are probably not in the jazz world are using elements of it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, these are the folks that, that have studied, you know, um, I, I think because, you know, we're, we're all, you know, jazz musicians and, and what we do and, and why we keep at it, even though we know that it's hard and economically uh, we, we struggle. Um, we're just like ants, you know, that, that, that are, you know, we're, we're always going to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to have our, our our ant hills suddenly that you know you can't uh, but run into it and um uh, you might run right through it but we'll scatter and and you know reform mm -hmm. i don't i don't know if that makes that's a good metaphor but um yeah you know i think uh for me you know i've i've I kind of carved out sort of a living doing this and I'm, I'm kind of feel proud that, that I've been able to manage this. If, you know, I've had my struggles. I have my, certainly my valleys where um, I keep thinking, you know, how come I don't get hired? You know, how come I don't get the calls for that kind of gig or whatever? Well, you know, you can't stew about that. You got to just keep mm -hmm. at it and um, um, find other ways to get around it and, and broaden your um, your your horizons, you know. So kind of, you know, figure out another way to make some money as a as a drummer. And um, at one point, you know, in the Boston days, I was doing a lot of weddings. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of musicians start off that way and or <laughs> maintain that way so that they don't have to, you know, um, be a mailman or you know, I hate to say that, but or you know, they don't have to do a regular nine to five job mm -hmm. or you go teach, you know, uh, and, and so there are a lot of successful jazz musicians who have become great, great teachers, a lot of great teachers who still play on the side. Um, and, um, I, you know, I haven't really gone that route. And, um, you know, I have done a little teaching here and there. Actually, I, I, Russ Johnson and I were involved with the teaching at a jazz camp for many years. Mm -hmm. And so we would overlap during those weeks. And, um, and so I did some teaching of, uh, of uh, junior high school kids of that level. Um, but that's only, you know, a one week or two week span. And uh, the rest of the year, maybe I do a master class here and there, mm -hmm. or I do a, um, maybe I, I get together with a student and uh, he would come over and we'd talk for three hours and, Sure. look at videos and uh, maybe he'd check out some some of my grooves or something i don't know yeah. it's always very loose to me but um i i have been able to get by because maybe i do have uh, a way of uh oh because you know i there we go i'll yeah. restart yeah, and so and because of the, you know having some broad interests, um, you know I've been able to get by even now 
as an archivist. And mm -hmm. um, my, you know, you know, back in the eighties, I worked with my dad on, on the swing era book. And, um, you know, I was doing all sorts of uh, looking for certain recordings and inputting it into discographies and, uh, and helping him out in those terms, you know, technically not really, mm -hmm. you know, suggesting, hey, this is how you write about Louis Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I wouldn't do that. But, uh, no. but it was it was the kind of like that researcher mind that I got mm -hmm. into. I got into discographies. I got into, you know, interested because of the radio thing I did. And 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 so over the years, I've always had this interest. And then suddenly I, I, I was kind of getting involved with the Music In project. Mm -hmm. um the late 90s uh, which my dad was involved with but we had some recordings and uh and so all i'm saying is that suddenly that's another sidebar of of the overall jazz umbrella thing that i'm into mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh and i was still carrying on as a leader of several bands or you know part of a cooperative band or um you know playing with legendary musicians like lee konitz Mm -hmm. um and getting to go with him to europe you know for two weeks or so mm -hmm. uh, and just uh getting those opportunities um so uh and and writing music at the same time and then doing the stupid gigs like the weddings or you know yeah. i don't know some weddings could be great actually i have to say yeah. um but uh I, you know there were a few other gigs that i had to you know they were compromised and sure. challenging uh, you know, morally or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, the thing, the, yeah. the things we do for the love of our art, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. and then, and then knowing all the different grooves, knowing how mm -hmm. to play a rock beat or a funk thing or, or hip hop or, you know, or even, you know, having a sense of Irish music or, uh, mm -hmm. Latin music, uh, you know, it's just endless, endless, yeah. uh, it, it, checking out all these grooves, Brazilian music. Um, and so that you're, you're ready, you're versatile, you're, you're, you can do anything that anybody throws music in, in front of you to, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. you know, to uh, actually, you know, do those grooves and uh, be able to fit in. Also understanding, you know, is this kind of an Elvin feel that you have to do, Elvin Jones feel, or, you know, is this gonna be more of a Art Blakey kind of thing? And, and knowing that history, Mm -hmm. And not necessarily duplicating what they did, but having that vibe and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a, a never ending, you know, process oh, yeah. getting, being a sponge, basically, of, sure. of everything that's out there. Well, it's like, you know, if you were to come to Milwaukee, you would need to learn how to play a polka gig. Yeah, there we go. You know, and I give you, you know, one of the things projects I've, I've got going for this summer. There's a German restaurant not far from here in West Allis, Wisconsin. And on Wednesday night, they have German music. And I have a good friend of mine who has, uh, uh, he leads the Milwaukee Stadtpfeiffer, which is a German wind ensemble, and then also has another uh, German group. Anyway, they'll be playing on Wednesday nights, but they decided they wanted to have a jazz night on Thursday nights. So a mutual friend of mine, Con, anyway, so I'll be playing in a beer garden on Thursday nights and hopefully giving people some jazz instead of oompa music. Yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, it's uh, it's a gig. So, you you know, and it's outdoors. It'll be beautiful. And uh, the bread's not great, but maybe you never know who's going to listen to us. So, 
right, right. You know, and uh, anyways, well, it's, you know, a really an interesting story and very similar to, to you know, I talked to a lot of different musicians. Uh, some of the people I've interviewed who are in Milwaukee, for example, uh, you know, I said, well, how do you survive, you know, uh, making a living as a musician in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? And, and it, so I have a former student of mine and he says, well, I just have to make sure I have lots of different revenue streams. So he owns a teaching studio. He has a sound and lighting company. He does DJing for weddings. He has three, four bands that he, you know, fronts and so forth. Yeah. And he says, between all that, he says, I can make a living. Yeah. And I said, well, good for you. So, you know, and I suppose it's even in, in larger cities, uh, it's rare that I talk to someone who's recording and performing, you know, regularly that they aren't also doing some teaching somewhere. So it's right. just right. one of those parts of the realities of, of what we do. Well, I'd really like to shift gears now because I know that you've been a composer and arranger and and yeah. I'm really curious to know about your creative process. Okay. What inspires you to write or when you write? Well, gosh, it's very random and it could be just anything to, you know, that I'm preparing for a, a, a tour or a gig, a one-time gig with my band. And, um, you know, I've got some music that I've laid out, maybe um, ideas that I've tried and I return to those um, pretty much constantly. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, and then uh, tackle it and see if I can get it done before our first rehearsal. Uh -huh. um, I, 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 I tend to like arranging somebody else's music more than composing my own music. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a sense of arranging somebody else's music because you know what that's somewhat like mm -hmm. um, before you even try to add notes to it. Mm -hmm. um, but there is that challenge of trying to make that original piece different and, mm -hmm. and, and without, you know, going overboard. And, you know, I did a, a, an album of uh, Keith Jarrett inspired music mm. and then some of it was directly, you know, arranging some Keith Jarrett music. These are those uh, great pieces that he wrote with the American Quartet, with uh, Dewey Redmond, Charlie Hayden, and Paul Motion. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an amazing period of Keith Jarrett's uh, career. And, you know, those compositions back then is also with the European Quartet that he had at the time. I mean, those are some of the greatest uh, pieces of work, uh, of music uh, that I, I know of, you know. Um, comparatively to anything at Duke or um, Charlie, Charlie Mingus or mm -hmm. uh, Bird or whatever, you know, Miles and sure. John Coltrane, Benny Golson, all those, Wayne Shorter, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, uh, you know, but to tackle that, you kind of feel a little self-conscious and you don't want to, you know, kind of ruin, you know, the original intent. Mm -hmm. um, and I was a little afraid that even Keith Jarrett would find out about this, but um, I did it anyway, and it was, you know, it was fun. It was a real challenge. It was great. I mean, I loved playing that music, and it it uh, helped us understand, you know, that period of the '70s, and and trying to incorporate that that vibe into our band, you know, taking our time, going through certain sections and improvising, and um, and uh, and segueing, you know, and, mm -hmm. and or or suddenly going off the grid from that particular mm -hmm. format and, uh, mm -hmm. 
and coming back and bringing the tune in. So I, it was it was it was fun to do those kinds of things. I also did a little Miles period, like the late sixties, early seventies. I got into uh, a lot of that kind of mm -hmm. uh, late, you know, the, the fusiony part of Miles. Um, so um, the the creative process is very random, and it could be something I hear and then. It could be something I've played on the drums or could be something I could be working on the keyboard. And, and at times, if I'm going back to old ideas, I'll start with that, but then I'll say, oh, I got something else going on here. And then it will be a whole new thing that I'm gonna write down, hopefully finish. And if I don't, you know, it's still gonna be in my little mm -hmm. folder of, of ideas. Um, and uh, so, I don't know. I, I I, I'm not that kind of guy that wakes up in the early in the morning and, you know, sets two hours away uh, just to write music mm -hmm. um, unless I have a deadline. And I used to do that as a, as in fact, the, the 12 piece band I had orange and blue. Yeah. You know, even before we had, you know, uh, uh, sequencers and Sibelius and all that, we're all writing down our, our parts and, you know, and I'm pounding away on the piano, even though I don't play piano. Mm -hmm. uh, just to hear it and get a sort of an idea of what I'm writing, but then you don't really know until the, the band starts to play it. So I had my early, uh, you know, learning of, of you know, uh, of, of approaching a large ensemble music and, and having at my disposal this sort of jazz workshop um, mm -hmm. where we would all bring in charts. Uh, that was really great. And uh, it informed me all sorts, all sorts of ways of, uh, you know all these kinds of arranging ideas and um, um you know it was uh a lot of fun doing that um uh, i learned to you know keep it you know without doing epic charts i, I started doing really epic charts mm -hmm. and um and that's hard because when i may when i say epic i'm talking about pages and pages of parts that these guys have to read and it goes to all different sections and sure, that's great in the outcome, but then, you know, when you're preparing for a live performance, there's not enough time to rehearse it. So I was able to figure out maybe I can do this more simply and do, you know, a couple of ideas with free floating uh, melodies on top of a rhythm or vice versa. Um, and uh, also understanding what all the large ensemble uh, bands at that time were doing. Of course, we drew from Duke and Charles Mingus and Gil Evans, mm -hmm. importantly, and uh, he was most important to me, Gil Evans. Um, mm -hmm. But then also, you know, uh, understanding where the uh, globe, um, uh, the, uh, the bands in Europe, the Vienna Art Orchestra, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, Pierre Dore's um, Jungle Orchestra, um, you know, uh, the Globe Unity, orchestra um and and then michael mantler's experiments mm -hmm. and carla mm -hmm. blay uh, mm -hmm. oh my gosh mm -hmm. you know, uh, so these were things i was getting into and then there were some classical concepts and things i was hearing mm -hmm. uh Zanakis was suddenly something i was really interested in mm -hmm. although i didn't really explore but my dad's own works uh, mm -hmm. and uh so that band was a was a, a great little um workshop of ideas and uh, we lasted for 13 years we recorded about five albums mm -hmm. and uh, i got to contribute a couple of original compositions and arrangements 
And then, you know, I got wise and decided, you know, I, I didn't want to lose too much money on this project because I was sort of supporting <laughs> it. And when I got to New York, I felt like, you know, it's about time I start doing smaller bands and sure. getting by with that. So I've been writing for small bands ever since. And, you know, the other part of the formula is getting great musicians who can interpret your music. And, and you know, you don't have to write too many directions on the music. These guys will probably play it right off the bat and that's pretty much what you were imagining or if you weren't you're kind of surprised and go oh yeah wow okay that's mm -hmm. the way it sounds all right i'm, I'm okay. with it so uh, you know i'm not uh, you know i'm no seasoned composer i i struggle it's it's a very lonely occupation mm -hmm. when you're there that late at night trying to break through the walls that you're you know preventing to get through and uh you know, but uh, somehow I have a sense of knowing, you know, how to complete a tune and some of it yeah. works and some of it I, you know, put I want I want to drill I want to drill down just a little bit more sure. because because I did read up about Orange Then Blue and I watched and listened to uh, I, I watched uh, I don't know one or uh, one or two YouTube videos and right. also listened to some uh, recordings that I could find and. Uh, you know, when I would teach jazz history, I used to tell my students that Duke Ellington, uh, you know, had wanted to be a painter early in his life. And yeah. that what he did when he wrote arrangements was he painted with sound on a canvas of silence. Now, I know, like, with your larger ensembles, you include, you know, kind of particular instrumentation and have sure. certain instruments doing uh, roles that are are uh, 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 maybe a little different than than what might be traditionally thought for those instruments to do. So what I'm really curious to know about is uh, what your various approaches. You've kind of touched on this a little bit already, which is what made me think of the question. Uh, your various approaches to the elements of music that you take to create different colors and forms of musical expression. I mean, how do you conceive of that, that maybe coloristic aspect of the music? Well, you get to understand that once you've started to work with a live ensemble, I'm uh -huh. um, just hearing it live. And then, and then also, you know, studying scores um, and then going through all the, you know, the great literature out there, um, the music uh, composition books, the orchestration books, uh, those are very important. Um, some of those are manuals, you know, you you, mm -hmm. you understand the ranges of the instruments too. Mm -hmm. That's very important. Then you understand your own musicians, the the, the guys in the band, mm -hmm. and what their capabilities are. And uh, and um, so you know, that Duke of course wrote for his uh, his band members, and mm -hmm. uh, so you like to think that you're doing that for your own band. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then and then uh, colors and texture is so important. And I always like mixing up. I never liked the sectional kind of thing, mm -hmm. which is very homogenous. And uh, but uh, I do like mixing it up. Um, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. again, it's it, it depends on the musicians you have in the band and. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, and then you learn from your mistakes. You, you know, you, 
certainly the eraser on the pencil is so important. Yeah. Um, I don't know if young kids even know what a pencil is these days. <laughs> <laughs> but the delete um, button on the computer, right? <laughs> yeah, the delete button. Yeah, so it's it's good to know how to edit because. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, your ego gets a, can get in the way, and um, and so um, uh, economy is so important. Uh, having um, the time to breathe, you know, and, and instead of throwing everything in there, mm -hmm. uh, that's important to me. Um, so um, uh, you know, I, I I hope to be writing more for. Um, at least my own band. I haven't done too much, so since the mm -hmm. pandemic kind of put a squash on everything. Sure. Uh, but uh, in terms of large ensemble stuff, I, I you know, it's been a while, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, we, we keep talking about having uh, some kind of reunion of the Orange and Blue. Uh, mm -hmm. band. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, you know, I mean, the whole the whole coloristic thing. I was going to even yeah. drill down further because as a drummer, yeah, okay, you're playing instrument that is often assumed to be merely a timekeeping instrument yeah yet how do you approach the drums the drum set or other percussion that you may use as color instruments well you hope you have uh, the drums that you play on or the cymbals uh, mm -hmm. generally because uh, sometimes you don't play on your own drums um well the approach is that um i hope to, that my color my my the way i I uh, approach the drums will add another color to everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you want to make sure that you have the dynamics of, of the, uh, the color range of your drums should really go from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, to me, when I hear, you know, drummers, um, well, all the great drummers, they all have their own personality they all, and, and mm -hmm. therefore they have their own color and the, their own approaches to that kind of palette that's in front of them. And we got a lot. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, every instrumentalist has a lot of colors, no matter if it's just, you know, three valves on a, on a brass instrument or yeah. a drummer who's got four limbs and multiple cymbals and multiple drums and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, I, I, I also also think of um, of um, you know areas of my drums. Mm -hmm. So you know if I'm if I'm accompanying a soloist and we're getting into a thing and we're building it up, I might just think of the the crash cymbal and and the hi hat and the snare. That's my area right now that I'm concentrating on, and I'll stay over there. Um, and then the next soloist might be the other side of the drums. Or it could be just symbols, mm -hmm. or it could be just drums. Mm -hmm. it could be, you know, do away with the sticks. It could be hands, mm -hmm. uh, brushes, combination brush, strick, stick, mm -hmm. um, vocals, utterances, mm -hmm. uh, the sides of the drums. Uh, you know, it's just endless uh, ideas yeah. that come around, you know, especially when you get in involved with improvised music. Right. As, as opposed to just timekeeping and even timekeeping there could be colors that you're doing and i mean just the even the the slightest um uh kind of uh pressure on the stick mm -hmm. or the way you hold the stick you know if i pull up the up the stick uh, i get a sort of a drier sound on the cymbal or if i go back to the butt of the stick 
I'm going to get a, a, a louder sound and more, you know, crashing sound or a slashing kind of thing that you're doing with the symbols. You can get so many colors out of the symbols. It's, it's endless. I keep saying that word. Sorry. A number of years ago, I was in a clinic session with Dave Mancini. Yeah. And Dave is a, was, I, I loved what he did because it, it really helped me press the issue with my students who were more jazz oriented that did not want to study their rudiments. Because what Dave would do is he would say, okay, here's how we can change things up. And he would, you know, demonstrate like a paradiddle or, you know, one of the rudiments. And then he would create a solo using all the other drums, but sticking with that same rudiment. And then he'd say, okay, but here's how we can make it sound different. And he'd do a different rudiment and that sort of thing. And it was a great way for me to be able to then point my finger at my students and say, see, you need to study your rudiments. Yeah, I because know. that's that is that's the uh, alphabet or the word, the vocabulary that you can use then to create what you want to say. Right. And uh, plus, you know, then, of course, transferring that over all the different ways that you've just talked about playing the sides of the drums or the cymbals or pressure, stuff like that, or even uh, you know, we know Art Blakey studied African drumming, yeah. um, Ed Shaughnessy. I remember we had him as a clinician when I was in college and he studied uh, tabla drumming in India. And of course has studied all of the uh, uh, rhythmic solfege that they teach uh, within it. So he would incorporate that in his solos and things. So, yeah, that sounds like. Uh, I think uh, that rudiments are so important. You know, I, I got some basic training early on. I kind of lost it uh, somewhere in the, in the, you know, uh, going through my conservatory years um, just because uh, I didn't have the right, you know, um, you know, uh, way of holding the sticks. Um, mm -hmm. And then I had, I, I hooked up with a great teacher, Pat Hollenbeck. Uh, and he said, man, you got to change up your, the way you're holding sticks. You got to start at the beginning again. No. So, you know, I go back to the pad and I'm doing, you know, these real, you know, very strict kind of, uh, strokes and uh that helped and then studying with alan dawson mm -hmm. who also was you know based in rudiments and he would give, give you he'd ask you to go through the ritual which is this you know uh, i guess it's a you know, three or five pages worth of swiss of rudiments going through mm -hmm. you know, single double paradiddle radomacues uh triple triple you know swiss rudiments all the way to the end and he would demonstrate that in some kind of metronome marking that you couldn't believe, mm -hmm. you know, that tempo that you couldn't believe. Wow. Um, and then, so that's the kind of thing I was, I was really, you know, being, it was being drummed into me that that's, mm -hmm. you, know, you need a, a, a certain foundation so that you can evolve from that and, and do your own thing, get your own sound. Hopefully by, you know, I'm 63, I'm hoping that, you know, I've kind of got my own sound, but you know, uh, it's, <laughs> Kind of difficult, you know, in these days of uh, trying to be uh, very special out there. Um, oh, but sure. anyway, so that's that's one thing. And also reading. Reading is yeah. really important. Knowing how to read music. Um, I think that all young musicians should really kind of understand, uh, you know, the basic jazz cliche type rhythms, you know, that you're going to see in big band charts every yep. time you uh, do one. And uh, I can't say I'm a great reader, but at least I can uh, I can get by, you know. Sure. 
uh, all those Russ Johnson charts that I had to read. Uh, was, <laughs> you know, I Russ, yes. You know. uh, yeah, so that's, uh, we're going to say something. Well, I was just going to, I was going to say this just sounds like tremendous advice uh, for young. I do have a few younger listeners. I actually, the largest percentage of my demographic is uh, uh, people that are in their uh, late 20s, early 30s, which surprises me. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and that has shifted ever since from the time I started my podcast. It was before it was people 60 and over, but now I'm. Uh, I've somehow emerged with this younger demographic and I, I have always kind of sought out and thank you for the advice that you offer, because I think that's what they listen for. They want to hear what experienced people like yourself would tell them uh, to, to make sure and, and do. Well, you, you mentioned about writing. Now, do you have any new uh, recording projects planned or in the works? Not yet, but no, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel like, you know, it's about time. I, I'm really uh, very busy right now. Sure. Uh, doing all these archiving archival projects. Right. Um, and it also might involve some film projects coming up. Um, I'm still screening the film I did in 2018 about the mm -hmm. MJQ, mm -hmm. which we could get into a little later. Well, yeah, yeah. actually, I wanted to get into that next, but thank okay. you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm just saying these, this archival thing has really been important. And it, it really started with, uh, well, my father's archive, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm still going through all these reel to reel tapes that I've been left with. Um, and understanding, you know, more about my dad uh, as uh, somebody who was in both worlds, the jazz and classical world. And then uh, all these concerts he produced and all this music he ended up with and, um, and just surprises that I'm coming up with. But also Lee Konitz, when he passed in 2015, and because I played with him in those last 10 years, pretty much on, uh, more than on than off, um, you know, I felt it was important that somebody in the family, uh, some, that I would offer my services to the family um, because we didn't quite know what Lee had left with us. And uh, suddenly I realized, oh my God, it's a huge archive, especially mm -hmm. reel-to-reels of, uh, mm -hmm from the 50s and 60s mm -hmm. about 200 of them and then 1200 cassettes you know and, and he was interested in everything he just wasn't you know mr lenny tristano or you know um doing the, the cool thing or whatever yeah. you know the, the, the stan kenton thing or whatever this guy yeah. had done everything and, and wow. people need to know that and free music uh, everything you know, just really a lot of different uh, styles of music so um, that's the other thing I've been involved with, and uh, there are about five or six other little projects that I'm. Involved oh man! With right now. Well, we'll look. We'll look forward to to yeah. uh, whatever what you come up with on uh, on Lee Konitz, because when you started talking about him, all of a sudden I started having like this mental review of you know I think my very first exposure to Lee Konitz was on uh, the Adventures in Time album recorded by Stan Kenton. Right. And he was playing uh, alto at that time. And uh, Stan Kenton was kind of my gateway to jazz because I, I remember hearing him live in like 1972 and going, oh, my gosh, this is for me because I was just digging what that orchestra, you know, that band was doing. So I started buying, I got on the Creative World mailing list and started buying albums from him. And then I remember when I discovered The Birth of the Cool. 
and listening to that and just, uh, yeah, yeah. Not to mention, you know, his own uh, albums. Um, I, the one I used to always, I used to use it in the recordings just because I thought the, the names of the tunes were, were catchy. I, I used to say, yeah, he calls this one Ice Cream Conants. Right, yeah. And uh, with uh, Subconscious Lee. Yeah. You know, and uh, and uh, so really I look forward to what you come up with. But, I, you know, you have uh, produced and are working on some films about jazz. Right. And I, I, I would like you to talk about those films uh, and maybe specifically, let's talk, you know, the, you've got the film, the music in a film documentary, and then also the Modern Jazz Quartet from Residency to Legacy. Now, I br I'm really thrilled to have discovered these films, George, and I'm so glad you turned me on to it, because I used to also teach a course called Jazz in Film. Mm -hmm. When I was at the university, another interdisciplinary course, I taught with a colleague in the Com Arts Department, and of course, scouring for uh, you know, films about jazz, about jazz musicians, not only documentaries, but also Hollywood, you know, films, sure. because I was, I was, I told the students what we're, I'm interested in sharing with you is how Hollywood chooses to portray jazz musicians, the jazz musician lifestyle, jazz music, you know, that whole thing is a way of immersing it. So, you know, a couple of um, films that I used to show what one was a, a great day in Harlem about the the, the Life magazine photo, uh, photograph and and uh, that the, the documentary film and then the other one of course Jazz on a Summer Day which was about uh, Newport. Now, I so my question for you and I both of these films are just absolutely wonderful, marvelous. I I just <laughs> ate you. it up watching them. Um, how do you feel like, for example? music in which which uh, and maybe i'm going to answer the, for you you know music in was relatively unknown i had never heard of it until you brought it to my attention uh but how do these films say differ from or add to our understanding of jazz as other documentaries such as the ones i've mentioned how how do they add to our understanding well it's just that you know uh we, we have to understand that, you know, the music developed in pockets, uh, in, in, in uh, these, these uh, oasises. You wouldn't, you know, of course, we all think, uh, you know, New York, uh, New Orleans, Chicago, those were the hubs of uh, where jazz was created and all that kind of stuff and, and then and flourished. Um, but here's a, a little, you know, spot in the Berkshires uh, Lennox that became a focal point of uh, jazz education mm -hmm. and also um, suddenly jazz experimentation. And, and because, you know, after a couple of years, uh, the School of Jazz sort of uh, kind of got some momentum, certainly got a lot of notice in those years because it was one of a kind. Um, and, and then you had people who showed up like Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry, who mm -hmm. at that time, nobody knew about. Right. And suddenly, they made an impact on everybody that was that were there, you know, all the students, all the mm -hmm. faculty even. Uh, and they were being followed around by, you know, the press, 
and um, Atlantic Records suddenly, you know, wanted to sign them up. Um, the point being is th there was this vortex of things happening there. And it really, you know, it had, it, it, the thing I learned about Music In was it wasn't just this school of jazz period, which was from 57 to 1960, but it was the pre prehistory of Music In even, like uh, in the early 50s that Marshall Stearns was holding these round tables and having discussions about jazz of that era and how um, the music of, uh, you know, the, the tropics or um, the Caribbean was infecting into jazz. Mm -hmm. And then he was inviting all these intellectuals, these professors, these linguists, um, uh, and then um, musicians like um, Tony Scott and, uh, and then, um, Mahalia Jackson was invited and Yubi uh, Blake was there to talk about ragtime and, and perform. And so they had these roundtable sessions for like the first five years of uh, the existence of Music Inn. And by the way, it was kind of a inn. It was again, mm -hmm. you know, guests would come up and it was a summer resort. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, the, the owners were smart enough to say, you know what, we'd like to bring our New York friends up to have these discussions and have these performances. And, you know, Woody Guthrie played there with uh, the Reverend Gary Davis and, um, and uh, of course, Pete Seeger. And the, so there was a little folk thing that was mm -hmm. established. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. then with Marshall Stearns, the jazz thing sort of uh, sort of wound it, wound it up. And then by 19, by the mid fifties, they started presenting jazz almost every week um, throughout the week in a performance uh, venue and paying those musicians. And so you got, you know, modern jazz quartet started coming up there. Dizzy Gillespie came up there. Clifford Brown, Max Roach played there. Monk played up there. Then you had the big bands of Basie and Ellington and Stan Kenton and uh, Woody Herman. And then you had the singers like Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, uh, Dakota Staten, uh, you know, uh, three or five other, Chris Connor. And then the idea of getting a little jazz school happening during those summer days was the brainstorm of uh, John Lewis, along with the Barbers, who were the owners of the Music Inn, and um, and my father was somehow involved with that that those discussions, and that's why that was developed in 1957, and it was right next to Tanglewood, which was a a learning institute. Mm -hmm for young musicians in those days, and as well as being the home, summer home of the Boston Symphony. So Lennox was right, you know, for this, this, this the concave of, of mm -hmm. all this mm -hmm. kind of arts uh, institutions um, that were in the area. And, and then people wanted to get out of the cities to come up there. And then that was part of the reason, but also the jazz musicians also wanted to get out of New York. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, suddenly you had Randy Weston there every summer, you know, um, mm -hmm. as a resident. And um, he was a cook at, at uh, 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 you know, he was a cook in the kitchen at some other oh. resort. But then he heard that Marshall Stearns had these round tables and he wanted to be involved. And he discovered Marshall Stearns who talked about Africa and the influence that Africa had on jazz. And, and, and then Randy was like suddenly involved with that, you know, and being a mm -hmm. presenter of, him, of, of history of jazz himself mm -hmm. later on with Marshall Stearns, but he was playing at another venue in that area. So that's just one connection, but uh, you know, it goes on and on. And, and so that's what the story, the story was basically to figure out how do we, how do we, how do we talk, how do we present a film about music in 
and, and really, you know, sort of focus on the first 10 years, the 1950 to 1960. Of course, it went on through the 70s in the rock era. Mm -hmm. um, and that's another story to be told. But we wanted to just uh, focus on the on the first 10 years because that was really the jazz era. And then it also had great folk music at that time as well. Well, I think it's an important segment of jazz history. Uh, yeah. I, I can't remember. Maybe it was your father that made the statement in the film um, that jazz did not have a great deal of respect for many, many years, you know, in terms of music and in, in the post-war years. Now we have intellectuals, we have academics, we have people who are asking questions about jazz, studying jazz, interested in jazz. We see the first, I know, because uh, it's my alma mater, University of North Texas, offering the first degree in dance band back, they called it then, they didn't, couldn't even call it jazz, they just called right. it dance band in 1948. And these are important, uh, I think, milestones in terms of getting people to realize that jazz is not just dance music or something that's entertaining, it is an important art form. Yeah, yeah. No, I. it, it, was, it was certainly ignored, uh, certainly, there weren't many, um, you know, books that you could read about jazz mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, there were very few history of jazz. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, it was only the jazz was around, basically, if you could say uh, about, you know, 33 years or so, you know, mm -hmm. in a sense, more than that, I'm sure. But but it was still young. And so mm -hmm. here we are, we're finally beginning to analyze what what this is all about. And this is what, you know, Marshall Stearns was one of the first historians to come up with a jazz book, basically. And then my father later on, you know, starting with early jazz and then the swing era. But mm -hmm. um, it was because of that period of time when when it was we, we were being more introspective about what we were trying to do or as jazz mm -hmm. musicians and as as jazz entrepreneurs, as jazz professors, as jazz historians and critics. Mm -hmm. And um, and it needed to be um, documented. Right. And and so, you know, even when Marshall Stern started these roundtables, this gave him the idea that there should be a repository for all these things that he was collecting. And that's what he started in 1952. He established the Institute of Jazz Studies, mm -hmm. which has become the biggest and most important uh, repository of, of jazz uh, recordings and documents and books and scores and charts in the world. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. that's at uh, located at Rutgers University. Uh -huh. So that's why Music In was an impact on that, you know, yeah. and, that, and that's why we wanted to tell that. Um, but uh, even so, the School of Jazz was very important because there was nothing like that. There, there was no um, interest or focus on small group uh, performance. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of big band, you know, kind of camps that Stan Kenton had established. Um, but there wasn't that anything about the small group thing. And, and John Lewis wanted to have a camp, you know, a three week session where there were small groups led by established greats and teachers like Jimmy Jufri and Dizzy Gillespie mm -hmm. and Oscar Peterson and um, Ray Brown and 
and the like and the, the members of the modern jazz quartet. Um, and they would have these ensembles in their little pup tents and they would go through these, all these, you know, this repertoire and then they would have a concert at the end of the summer mm -hmm, and, uh, mm -hmm. to showcase all the, the, the progress of those students that, that were learning. And some, you know, about a third of the students of school jazz from 57 to 60 all became well-known, maybe masters of, of, of mm -hmm. jazz. Um, and then another third, you know, probably continued in music. Maybe they became teachers. Another third got into other interests. Mm -hmm. But it was still a, a very important period. And I, I'm, I was glad to be involved with this film crew that really started it before me. But I had already had some interest in those recordings that I found in my dad's collection of the, uh, the, the concert from 1959 that involved Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry oh, right yeah. before they got to uh, New York. So, yeah, yeah uh, with their, what was called then the new thing. Yeah, it was. And, and well, it was not even known as the new thing. Until, exactly. You know, this was before probably, the new thing was new. Yeah, it's yeah. so new. Um, and, yeah. you know, the, the guys that were there at the School of Jazz, you know, when Ornette arrives, they're guys like Dave Baker and, and uh, Larry Ridley. And, you know, these are musicians we're going to know about probably in a few years. But they they were students at that time. Mm -hmm. They were from Indiana. Um, you know, a few other people like that. Um, you know, they they felt like they had made it. They they were the cats because they were they had learned all the repertoire of Art Blakey and and Horace Silver and uh and, you know, Coltrane had not quite been established, but they were hearing about him. And maybe Sonny Rollins was the guy and maybe Monk. And then here's Ornette Coleman that shows up and, and all the hoopla behind it. And, uh, you know, Gunther and uh, Martin Williams and and um, you know, even beyond that, you know, Leonard Bernstein finds out about Ornette. And all this, everybody's going, what is it? What is it about Ornette? And they're playing, you know, these kind of free tunes and they're not really paying attention to changes. And, you know, that, mm -hmm. that shook up Dave Baker and Larry Ridley and all these other guys that felt like, well, I thought we knew what was going on. <laughs> and so there was some resentment, you know, yeah. there were, there were camps that were divided um, uh, just because of the presence of Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry. And you can imagine the pressure that that maybe Ornette felt, you know, and, and sure. maybe Don Cherry wouldn't have felt that because he was the, the feisty guy. He probably was like, say, hey, man, you should check this out. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Ornette was, you know, more reticent and, and probably didn't know how to really explain what he was trying to do. But he knew exactly what he was doing. And sure. and, and so these were the things that were were, uh, you know, going the swirling around in that particular summer of 1959. I might wow. even do a movie just about that. That would but, be cool. But then, you know, even the teachers, there was some resentment from the teachers. Bob, Bob Brookmeyer left the camp halfway through because he was, yeah, he would, look, he was having marital problems and he was drinking, but he also couldn't stand the fact that Ornette and Don were practicing these tunes and he felt like they were out of tune. And, um, you know, he talks, he, he told us about this because he, he admits that he was wrong. He was, you know, just temperamental and he couldn't take it anymore. So he left the camp. And that's when my father took over his ensemble, uh, interestingly enough. But mm. then Brookmeyer, you know, he said, well, maybe I should be checking out these guys. So he goes down to the five spot that November and he sits himself at the bar every night. And he mm -hmm. starts to understand what this Ornette Coleman quartet is doing. And I find that just so remarkable, you know, that's like yeah. a microcosm of what we all started to learn, I guess, you know, all mm -hmm. these 
all these guys, you know, Cannonball was against Thornet and, uh, you know, uh, Dizzy didn't accept them exactly. And Charles Mingus had something, you know, beefy about, he had a beef about Ornette. The others did, were affected, and Jimmy Jufri was one of the first ones to say, "Oh my God, uh, now I, you know, I'm totally going to play free. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to at least attempt to do that." And that's why Jimmy Jufri ended up with Paul Blay and Steve Swallow, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. great trio of uh, doing, you know, fairly advanced experimental, mm -hmm. improv type uh, compositions. So, yeah, it's. I can go on and on about. Oh that. wow! Well, that's that's really great, and it is a a very wonderful film. I'm so glad that you pointed me towards it. Uh, well, George, I'm going to wrap things up because you okay. know we've been at this almost 90 minutes. Can you uh, believe sorry that? About that? Oh no, I'm not sorry either. I I appreciate you taking the time, uh, and I just didn't want to run run you too long or too rapid. Yeah, yeah. So. Let me just uh, sum up as saying, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Well, just to say that, you know, the follow-up to that first film, Music In Film, which was done about 20 years ago, um, or started about 20 years ago, I, I did a follow-up to it called The Modern Jazz Quartet mm -hmm. from Residency to Legacy. So, um, you know, I, I used some of those interviews that were from the first film, uh, but there were moments where they talked about the modern jazz quartet, not necessarily focused on just the music in or school of jazz or any of those subjects that mm -hmm. we were looking for at the time. So I decided to put a film together about their role at music in mm -hmm. and school of jazz. And it just became this thing that was, you know, it was supposed to be like 20 minutes, like an extra feature mm -hmm. for the first film, but then it became 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then finally it settled at uh, about 80 minutes. Mm -hmm. um so that's i'm proud of that film because i you know i that i did that purely on my own i uh, learned how to use you know final cut um you know it's not great filmmaking but i i really enjoyed putting it together and it tells a story and thank mm -hmm. god percy heath was still around when we interviewed mm -hmm. him. So that, mm -hmm. he was the one person of the modern jazz quartet that we could really you know focus on and, and get his input about those days and so it's a nice wow. little film that uh, I still screen and uh, gives you an idea of that period of the music in and what they're, yeah. what, you know, and how the modern jazz quartet, you know, and certainly I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, make sure that people would hear some of the music as opposed to like 30 seconds of it. So, mm -hmm. you know, there may be quiet moments of two minutes of the modern jazz quartet performing their material before I get back to the threads of all the interviews that I did. Mm -hmm. and, and the second thing I didn't do was I didn't have a narrator. And um, I felt like I didn't need one because, you know, the thread follows along to all mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, the, the plethora of uh, interviews that I had my, uh, that I had access to. So wow. um, anyway, that's a, that's a film that I still screen. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm just enjoying playing again because I'm starting Good. to play a little bit here and there and, and uh, here in the Boston, New York area and the New England area. Oh, that's super. That's yeah. super. Well, George, it, it has been an absolute pleasure to okay. have made your acquaintance today. And I want to thank you for taking uh, time uh, to talk with me. And I want to wish you uh, yeah, all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued uh, successful musical future. And I want to thank you for doing what's, what's a very important thing, this podcast series and uh, 
showcasing all sorts of musicians. That is probably 90% of musicians I don't know about or folks that you've interviewed. So I'm, I'm willing to, you know, plow through good. your uh, collection and <laughs> well, very all good. that out when I get time, you know, obviously. Well, but uh, but I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you very much, George. And you have a great rest of your day. You, you too. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. My discovery composer of the week is Peter Boyer. Boyer was born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1970 and began composing at the age of 15. His first major composition was a large-scale Requiem Mass in memory of his grandmother, composed while only a teenager. He was named to the first All-USA College Academic Team, comprised of the quote-unquote, 20 best and brightest college students in the nation. Boyer holds degrees from Rhode Island College and the Hart School at the University of Hartford. He also studied privately with John Corgliano and completed the film and television scoring program at the University of Southern California, Thornton School of Music. Boyer holds the Helen M. Smith Chair in Music at Claremont Graduate University. He resides just north of Los Angeles. Grammy-nominated Peter Boyer is one of the most frequently performed American orchestral composers of his generation. His works have received over 500 public performances by more than 200 orchestras and tens of thousands of broadcasts by classical radio stations around the United States and abroad. He has conducted recordings of his music with three of the world's finest orchestras, the London Symphony Orchestra, the Philharmonia Orchestra, and the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Boyer's major work, Ellis Island, The Dream of America, for actors and orchestra has become one of the most performed American orchestral works of the last 15 years, with nearly 250 performances by more than 100 orchestras since its 2002 premiere. In 2017, a recording of the work was nominated for a Grammy for Best Contemporary Classical Composition. Boyer has received commissions from several of the most prestigious American institutions and ensembles. He served as composer-in-residence of the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra and the Pasadena Symphony. His music appears on record labels including Naxos, BSO Classics, Sedil, Coke International Classics, Albany, and Fanfare Cincinnati. In addition to his work for the concert hall, Boyer is active in the film and television music industry. He has contributed orchestrations, orchestral arrangements, to more than 35 feature film scores from all of the major uh, movie studios. His music has appeared in documentary films, short films, and a wide variety of television programs. The All Music Guide lists 14 recordings of Boyer's work, including chamber work, orchestral, and film score works. In my show notes is a link to a performance of Boyer's Fanfare for Tomorrow, 
performed by the United States Marine Band for the inauguration of President Joseph Biden. That wraps episode number 84. My show notes along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing New York City-based jazz drummer Jimmy McBride. Other upcoming interviews will include Canadian blues singer and guitarist Sue Foley, Nashville-based singer-songwriter Stacy Antonell, New York-based jazz flautist, composer, and bandleader Jamie Baum, and singer-songwriter Seth Wharton of Wharton & Company, an original folk rock group based out of upstate New York. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.